Amen. 09 was a great year for us, and thank you for every part that you played in uh, this ministry and uh, all that you've done. And as it says there, I like the way that, uh, that video concludes. Let's start writing the script for 2010 now. And uh, I think this is going to be our best year yet. You can hear in my voice that uh, I am slightly under the weather. And after preaching last night and preaching first service today, and then doing the annual meeting in the middle, and then now coming to this one right here, uh, I'm, I'm going to do the best that I can. And if you listen carefully, I'm not, I can't really yell. This will be a non-yelling uh, sermon. I'll just have to wave my arms to emphasize what I'm saying, but hopefully it'll still communicate. I'll do the best that I can today for you. Well, we're back in 1 Corinthians, and uh, if you would turn there with me, Paul is concluding an argument, an answer really, that he uh, began in chapter 8, verse 1. And remember that half of 1 Corinthians is Paul answering questions that the Corinthians had for him. And they asked him the question, they said, we want to know whether or not it's okay for Christians to eat meat that has been offered to an idol in the, in the temple. And we also would like to know whether or not Christians can go to the temple and to uh, participate in the feasts of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of, of Corinth. And this was very much a part of the culture. They all grew up doing this. Everybody does this. It'd be like in our, in our day, uh, watching the Super Bowl uh, or, or going to Fourth of July fireworks. I mean, it's just kind of like what we do. And in Corinth, what you did is you went to the feast at the temple uh, for Aphrodite. And so these Christians, this was just normal culture for them. But now that they are believers in Jesus Christ, they're wondering, now wait a second, if Aphrodite is an idol, are we, is it okay for us to go and to be a part of that or not? And some people said it was fine. Some people said it wasn't okay. They write a letter to Paul and they say, we want you to tell us what should we do. And so Paul has been answering this now for a couple of chapters, and we have talked uh, extensively about his answer, about whether or not we can eat uh, meat offered to an idol. And Paul says, you can, as long as your conscience allows you to do it. And in eating it, you are not doing damage to a fellow Christian who doesn't have freedom in their conscience to do it. And the beauty of this, of course, is that none of us are struggling today with whether or not we can eat meat offered to idols. I'm unaware of where you could even buy it if you wanted to. I'm pretty sure that Strax and, uh, you know, Kroger's don't carry uh, idol meat. So it's a beautiful paradigm, though, for all the things that we do have disagreements about and that good people will come to different conclusions on. How do we handle these things? And particularly in lifestyle issues, how do we do it? And Paul has just said to us, listen, there are more important things than eating idle meat, like the kingdom of God and the ministry of the word and relationships with one another. And so the stronger Christian is the one who has freedom, but he, is strong, he or she is strong enough to not participate in that. They have freedom not to do it for the sake of the kingdom and for love. And these are the things that are most important. In fact, in just a chapter or two is the famous chapter on love, where he is going to lay that out as the ethic for Christians, is to love God and to love one another. Now, Paul is concluding here his uh, teaching on 
this matter. And one thing that he hasn't really addressed, he's talked about whether we can eat meat offered to an idol. He's not talked about whether or not Christians can go to the temple of Aphrodite and participate in the idol feast. And that now is what he gives them a very direct answer regarding. And so it's here in 1 Corinthians 10. I'd like to read it. And why why don't we stand for the reading of God's word this morning? 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. Now this passage comes on the heels of verse 13, which we studied two weeks ago, and is a wonderful passage where Paul assures us that God is sovereign over the trials and the troubles and the struggles that we face, and that he guarantees that he will never bring to us something that he will not provide the resources for us to endure it. Now, if you took that verse in isolation, you could think to yourself, you know what? I'm invincible. I can go anywhere that I want to. God's never going to put me anywhere where I can't handle it and kind of get this like Superman mentality. I can do what I want. I read about Muhammad Ali that one time he was on a plane and the flight attendant said to him, "Uh, Mr. Ali, I need you to put your seatbelt on. And Muhammad Ali said, Superman don't need a seatbelt. And the flight attendant said, Superman don't need a plane. When we get full of ourselves and when we get this sense of invincibility, we are often blinded to actually the weaknesses that, that we have. And as Christians, while it is true that God is sovereign over the struggles and he is with us wherever we go and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world and all the rest, it is also true that there are certain things that are so damaging to us and so spiritually incompatible that we must flee them. And that's really the command that he gives here when it comes to idolatry. Right off the bat, it's, and you see it uh, in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This Greek tense is a, it's an imperative. So this is a command. It is not a suggestion. It's not a, hey, if you want to do it, it is a directive. Christians are to flee from idolatry. And that means you don't hang around it, you don't linger around it, you don't see how close you can get to it without falling, you run 
away from it. Now, let me, uh, let me illustrate it this way. Could you help me with something a second? Would you mind? Just step right up here a second. What's your name? Luke? Okay, Luke. I've done this all three services. This is, this is the third one. I'd like you to demonstrate what fleeing means. Could you do that for us? Okay, let's pretend I'm a grizzly bear, and that's the escape right there. What would you do? All right. That's great. That's the only time you're allowed to run in church right there, okay? Okay, come on back down, take your seat. Thank you for your help. Maybe that's a better, uh, a better teaching than doing the etymology of it through the Old Testament or something. You just run. You steer clear. That's what he's saying. So one of the challenges that we have uh, with this passage is the context that it is in and finding the context that we are in. And the gods of our day are, are, are the idols of our day are different than they were in first first century Christianity and in the Old Testament. Then they made gods, right? They carved them out of wood and stone. Today, our gods are not as tangible, but they are no less real. The idols of our world are uh, anything that we trust in, anything that we crave, anything that we look to for meaning or significance, anything we long for, anything that we treasure, anything that we desire that rises to a level that is in competition with all of those same desires for the one true God. It is not that, and here's the thing about idolatry. We tend to think that, you know, it, you can have, it's just God or an idol, but Actually, the most dangerous thing is pluralism, where I believe that I love God, but I also have these other things with it. And that's, the, that's what we see going on here. We have Christians living in a pagan culture where idolatry is a part of the culture, and they're wondering if they can participate within the feasts that honor this particular God. They're, they're, they're desiring to have Jesus and Aphrodite at the same time. And Paul writes to them and says, listen, you just get away from it. Run, flee. This is not a matter of Christian liberty. This is not an idol meat issue. This is not something good people can disagree on. There are some things that are not that. This is a moral category. Christians are not to have anything to do with idolatry. And maybe today, that's the word that you needed to hear. Maybe that's it right there. What do I do with this idol, this thing that is way too important in my life, this relationship that is way too important in my life? What do I do with it? You flee. And that means get radical with it. That might mean, uh, and I hear stories of this, God gets a hold of people's hearts and they are, they're dumping the drugs down, down uh, the toilet and they're, they're getting rid of the alcohol that's been a bondage to them and they're breaking off relationships that have been corrupting to them. They're quitting jobs that have, uh, compromised them. They are getting radical with the idol. And maybe today that's what you need to get radical with it. You've played around with it. You've lingered with it. You've kind of sort of, um, uh, Try to get close to it without letting it corrupt you, and it is. And what you need to do is you need to get rid of it, get away from it, and flee. Now, Paul could hear the Corinthians protesting this. Uh, remember, this is just like normal part of the culture of the day. 
They grew up doing it. Their parents grew up going to it. This was like, again, like going to the Super Bowl or watching the Super Bowl, just kind of normal stuff in our culture. Not that I'm equating watching the Super Bowl with idolatry because I am going to watch the Super Bowl and look forward to it very much. Can't wait to see the Colts play the Vikings in the Super Bowl. So anyway, uh, so don't over compare those, that analogy. Paul now answers their protests by giving three reasons that they should not be a part of this. And the first one we see in verse 16, he says this, the cup of blessing that we bless is not, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Here's the first thing that he says, the Lord's supper, which Christians, we Remember the Lord's death till he comes. This is one of the sacraments of Christianity. The Lord's Supper is actually spiritual fellowship with Christ. So he goes in his answer to something that I would not expect him to to turn to, but he goes to uh, the Lord's Supper. And he's going to talk a lot more about this in chapter 11. In fact, in chapter 11, we have the longest section of teaching about the theology of the Lord's Supper anywhere in the New Testament, and we're going to get to it soon, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says, you don't begin to realize how significant partaking of the Lord's Supper actually is. And I would have to believe that uh, here today, many of us are not, don't, don't either. Here's what he says. First of all, the cup of blessing that we participate in. This is the, this is the cup. If you've ever partaken in communion or the Lord's Supper, you know that there's a piece of bread and there is a, a, a cup of juice. And that cup, he says, is a participation in the blood of Christ. You recall that when uh, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was in the upper room. There he is with his disciples. They are taking the Passover meal. And the third cup of the Passover meal is what most people believe that he used to institute the Lord's Supper, which was known as the cup of blessing. And in the ceremony, there was a blessing or a a thanksgiving that was prayed over that particular cup. And these are the words of the Passover. They would say, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, who givest us the fruit of the vine. So that was a prayer of thanksgiving, that cup of blessing. Every time we take that cup, he says here that we are participating in the blood of Christ. And that word there for participating is the familiar Greek word koinonia. It's often translated fellowship. It's actually used four times in this passage. And what the word, the core of the word is koine, which means common, and koinonia means to, to share, to have in common, to fellowship. When we partake of the cup, we are fellowshipping spiritually with the risen Christ and embracing all of the salvific benefits that came and come to us from his cross. So do you hear that? It's not just about drinking some cup and eating some bread. There is something spiritually significant that is going on there. We are, we are uniting with him in a spiritual sort of way. We are embracing him as Lord. We are, we are spiritually bringing into ourselves personally, which is what the drinking means. The ceremony is not that we take the cup and we do this. We do this 
And I'm, I am bringing into myself, in a most personal way, what the symbol of that cup represents. And Paul says, that's a big deal. God takes that very seriously. And of course, so should we. This is why the Lord's Supper is oftentimes called communion. Have you ever wondered why do we call it communion? It's called communion because we are communing with Christ. He goes on to talk about the bread. The same thing is true. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Okay, so we're eating bread. It is a physical thing, but it is a symbol of a spiritual reality. We are fellowshipping with the body of Christ. So that is vertical. It is also horizontal. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of one bread. So communion, then, is a vertical communion with God. It is a horizontal communion with one another. And this is why in chapter 11, Paul's going to take them to task because they're getting together to take communion and like the rich people are all taking it and they're ignoring the poor and there's division and rancor and the church is still taking the Lord's Supper. He's going to say, listen, don't you realize it is one bread. It is a spiritual symbol of our unity in Christ. And this is a big deal. This is a huge deal to God. And it needs to be to us as well. So here's the thing to know when it, when it comes to this, that the Lord's Supper is more than it appears and it is less than it appears. It is more than it appears and it is less than it appears. Here's the it is less. The less portion of this is there are many people that view the Lord's Supper as it's like a, it's like a get out of jail free card. You can sin all week, live like the devil, but if you go to church and you take the Lord's Supper, you walk out, you think I'm clean. I've done the ritual. I'm good with God. I can live in whatever way that I want for another week as long as I come back and I take the Lord's Supper. It is, it is not a kind of spiritual trump card. It is less than that. The Israelites, he's, he says in chapter 10 here at the beginning, they had their own kind of communion and look what happened to them. So just because you take communion doesn't mean that God's okay with you. It is less than that. But it is also more than what many people realize. And that's the argument that he's making here. It is not simply a ritual. It is not merely a remembering of him, although it is most certainly that. It is a spiritual communion. There is a reality to that that God takes seriously. We're participating in the redemptive benefits that Christ procured for us. Now, Here's the implication. If I am a Christian and I am taking the Lord's Supper and I am in fellowship, communion with the risen Christ, why would I bring into that fellowship, that communion, anything that is not worthy of him? And that's what he, trans- he, he, he transitions now regarding these idol feasts. The Corinthians didn't realize how special this was and how damaging the idol feast was. Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So what about these idol feasts? What should we think about them? Well, 
Paul repeats here what he said in chapter 8, verse 4, that that idol itself isn't anything. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of stone. It's not a god. Meat offered to it isn't affected at all. Eat it and enjoy it. It's nothing. However, there is something behind that idol that is something to beware of. I've been to India a couple times, and if you go there, they've, they've got, there are, there are idols everywhere there. And even if you believe that it is nothing, I'll tell you, it is a little creepy. You go to the hotel, you walk into the hotel lobby, and here's this idol, and they're, all, they're grotesque, you know, legs and arms pointing out, and elephant face, and, you know, you, you, can, you can have a good theology as you walk by it and say, piece of wood, but it's sort of creepy, you know? You think, oh, sort of a, what's going on with that thing? It's not anything itself. There is something sinister, though, that lies spiritually behind it. And that is what he says here. Behind that piece of wood, which is nothing, actually is a demonic influence. There is evil behind it that is manipulating the hearts of men and women and controlling them for its own devices. Now, whenever we talk about demons and the devil, I always feel like I got to somehow acknowledge that we live in a day when people don't really believe this so much. And you watch TV about, you know, the, the demon or something. It's, sort of, it's a guy with little things coming out of his head. And, um, you know, to talk about angels and all of that. It's not, it's not contemporarily popular right now. But the Bible makes this very clear. That there is a world, there is a dimension just beyond our view. And in that dimension, which is as real as this dimension that we are in today, there are beings... Powerful beings. There are angels of light who serve the living God and do whatever he bids them to do. There also are evil spirits, demons, who went with Satan in his rebellion against God and who along with Satan now do all that they can to destroy the work of God, to to demean his glory, to destroy his work in the lives of people, to take down his church and all the rest. They are active. They are doing it. Paul writes this in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you hear that? I wonder if right now, all of a sudden, we could just get a little glimpse. Like if suddenly there was an angel in front of us, wouldn't that be a transforming experience? I think all of us would serve Jesus more faithfully this week, don't you think? Like, wow, this is like really real. How about the sight of a demon? I think that would shake some of us up, wouldn't it? And we'd be like, wow, this whole thing is real. I'm going to get serious about my walk with the Lord. It is real, friends. It is real. In fact, if we had eyes of faith right here in this room, I wonder what's going on. Right here, the word of God is being proclaimed. God's servants have gathered here. But also at play here is the influence of of the evil one, for sure. In the minds and the hearts that are here, it's very real. So an idol is nothing. But the influence behind the idol is something very profound. And that influence is to manipulate our hearts. This is what, 
You know, you're probably never going to see a demon in this life. Probably not going to happen. But we are influenced by them. And they use the idols of our culture to manipulate us. This is what, this is what Satan did with Eve. If you remember when there, God says to Adam and Eve, there's one tree, one tree that you can't eat the fruit from. The rest of the place, take as much as you want. So one day, guess where Eve was standing? In front of the one tree. There she was looking at it. Window shopping. And Satan slithers up to her and says this. Eve, you will not surely die if you eat of the fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And if you know the story, Eve took of it. Adam ate as well. What was going on there? Who, who actually was Eve worshiping? Was she worshiping the apple? Who was she worshiping? Herself. Herself. She wanted to be like God. She wanted to exalt herself. And ever since then, this is, this is, the, this is the human heart. We want to exalt ourselves. We all want to be gods. Who wouldn't want to be a god here? We all want to be gods and exalt ourselves. And so, just like Satan used Eve's selfish desires against her to destroy her, the forces of evil use the idols of our day to manipulate us, and they appeal to our selfish desires, and they do this to demean the glory of God. Gods of the West include money, sex, power, fame, appearance, security, entertainment, technology, and any good thing that is raised up to a level of being an ultimate thing. When I look to that thing for what only God can rightly provide, that now is a God in my life. And I am worshiping it. I am following it. And these, listen, the demons have been doing this for thousands of years. They know how to manipulate our hearts. They know how to push our buttons. There isn't a single one of us that has a certain kind of strength that they haven't seen before. They know exactly how to do it. So here is Paul answering the question whether or not they, uh, the Corinthian Christians can go to Aphrodite's temple and to eat a feast in her honor. Is that, is that appropriate for a Christian to do or not? And what Paul says here is that just like eating at the Lord's table is a fellowshipping with God, eating at Aphrodite's table is also a fellowshipping. It is a participating in that evil that that demon, that that idol represents. And here's his argument. Can anybody who claims to be a Christian and is fellowshipping with the risen Christ bring simultaneously into that fellowship something as evil as a goddess? A pagan god? And he says, no, <laughs> this should not be. Don't do it. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Jesus and, Jesus and Aphrodite are never having lunch together. Never. And we should not give them a lunch appointment by the way that we live our lives. And that bring them both together. Now just yesterday, I was over at Borders uh, 
bookstore. And I had my computer, and I was going, doing like the last edit of this very sermon. And so if you've ever been there, you know that you can get your coffee, and then you can, uh, they got all these like little cubby hole kind of things where they got chairs, and you can sit there. So I went to one of the cubby hole things, and I sat down, got my computer up, got it powered up, I'm just starting to work, and I kind of began to look at the books that were in this area that I was sitting. And they're all under the title Metaphysics. And I'm looking at, and here's like uh, Tarot Card Reading 101, Wicca for Dummies, uh, Numerology, you know, Identifying Ghosts. There was one book called The Book of the Damned. I'm like, who buys these books? You know, I don't get it. Just, it just, I just realized, man, this whole thing is, it's all false. This is just a bunch of lies here. Well, there I was working on my sermon. So this young woman comes into that little area and begins to look in the uh, Wicca era section, the witchcraft and that stuff, starts looking at that section. So there I am, I'm kind of working on my sermon. I kind of got an eye on her at the same time. And I said, finally I said, hey, excuse me, excuse me, can, can I, can I, can I ask you a question? She was like, sure. She goes, I said, um, how, how did you get interested in this stuff? And she goes, well, I got a friend who, uh, she's, a, she's a witch. And, and so I have gotten kind of, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of curious, kind of curious. And, and I, uh, okay. And so are you, are you, so you're kind of searching for something. She goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm looking right now. I'm looking. So I turned my computer and I said, well, actually I'm here working on a sermon. I pastor a church here in the area. And I said, I said, I believe the end of your search is Jesus Christ. And she goes, no, no. she says, oh, I believe in Jesus. And I thought to myself, this is such a good sermon illustration. (laughs) Because, I mean, if there's anything that is in our culture that is obviously influenced by the evil one, I would say it would be the metaphysics section of thought and uh, witchcraft and, and all the rest. And such a picture. Here she is. And she's, she's, she's interested in this. She's wanting to read books about this. She's maybe pursuing this. And at the same time, she's a believer in Jesus by her own profession. How do those two things go together? They, they like have nothing in common. And yet that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were fellowshipping with Jesus through the Lord's Supper But by participating in the idol feast, we're implicitly affirming the values of Aphrodite and all that she represented. And Paul's like, they got nothing in common, and you Christians have a responsibility not to bring them together. That's why he says in verse 20, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of the Lord. Of demons. So you see what he's getting at here? Don't do it. Don't do it. Now, the third reason that they should not do this is in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? 
Are we stronger than he? The third reason is that God is jealous for his glory. And he is jealous for the hearts of his people. And he is jealous for his rightful place as preeminent in our values and what we treasure and what we're living for. He is jealous for that. And we see Paul here grounding his entire argument in the character of God. Bottom line is that our God is a jealous God. I wonder how many of us think of him that way. When you sit down to pray during the week and you think about God, you like me, I think about he's my heavenly father. I think about his love. I think about his kindness to me in Jesus Christ. I think about his grace. I think about his power and how I need his power. I think about how he provides everything that I need. And boy, I need daily bread today, God. Please give me daily bread today. I think about how he is a forgiving God. Forgive my trespasses as I also forgive those who trespass against me. We think about these characteristics of God that we really like about God. But similar to what Dia Carson brought up last weekend, we don't like to think too much about his wrath, and we probably don't think at all about his jealousy. He is a jealous God. He is jealous for the fame of his name. He is jealous for the splendor of his holiness. He is jealous for his glory. Exodus 20. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them, speaking of idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He is jealous. Think of that. The God that we're worshiping right now, he is jealous in a righteous way for the unique position that he is as the preeminent one, as the supreme one, and the only one worthy of our hearts and of our lives he's jealous for it now here's the thing when we are jealous for his glory when we are zealous for the fame of his name we like god will not want to bring anything that is not worthy of him into that fellowship with him in fact the more zealous i am for him the more jealous I am for his glory. That'd be a good phrase to write down. The more zealous I am for him, the more jealous I am for his glory. Now, I want to illustrate this to you. And I've got to put something on, so everybody close your eyes. Act like you're praying or sleeping. Many of you, that'll come easy. In fact, some of you just keep doing what you've been doing. All right, no peeking now. All right, we're almost there. Okay. What's the big deal? (laughs) Now, some of you right now, you're like, I hate that shirt. (laughs) Let's explore why you hate it. Here's what I think, okay? Now, I didn't grow up in Chicago, but this is what I think. 
I've, I've lived here for 12 years, and I've sort of garnered that there is a um, rivalry between these two groups. In fact, what I've noticed is the people that are passionate for the Cubs, they don't like the White Sox at all. And those that are passionate for the White Sox, they don't like the Cubs at all. And so the reason that people don't like this shirt is that if you're passionate for the Cubs, it like, it grates on your nerves to see one shirt that has also the White Sox in it. And if you are passionate for the White Sox, it's just like, it's just, it's like, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to have a Cubs emblem next to the, or watch this. I only did that this service. I don't know where that came from, but uh, when I was looking for this shirt, I got online and uh, there were some other people looking for it. And one guy wrote to the people that are looking for it. He said, don't wear that in the city of Chicago. Both groups will beat you up. (laughs) Now, let me just apply this here. The more zealous you are for the Cubs, the more this shirt bothers you. The more zealous you are for the White Sox, the more this shirt bothers you. Because to love a team is to be jealous for it. The more that you love it, the more zealous you are for it, the more jealous you also are for it. And my dear friends, if you don't know where I'm going with this one, then there is something very sad here because this is exactly what Paul is saying. When Christians claim to know Jesus Christ and embrace the the salvation that comes by faith in him and his work on the cross, when we participate in the Lord's Supper and we, we, we share in that special relationship, And then when we, uh, right here at Bethel Church, and then we get in our cars that we love, and we go to the houses that we really love, and we watch the sports all afternoon that we really love, and we don't talk about God at all, and then we wake up in the morning and we go to the job that we give our souls to in order to buy all the things that we're really living for, and we do that all week long, and then we come back to Bethel Church, and we take the cup, and we take the bread, and then we turn around and we do that again, what we are doing implicitly is that we are sharing in Christ, but we are actually also sharing in a kind of idolatrous lifestyle that is bringing two things together that ought not ever go together. There is one Christ and one Lord. And all these other things are so unworthy of him. And in many cases, evil themselves. And Paul's like, your lifestyle needs to reflect that Christ is supreme in your life. And therefore, to go party with Aphrodite and then also to sit at the Lord's table is not compatible. These two things do not belong together. He is jealous for his glory. And you know, only the Lord knows hearts here today. I certainly don't. And I have plenty to worry about in my own heart. But simply to say this, that God knows our hearts. He does. 
And we do as well. And I would have to believe, as I stand up here and flap my gums, wear this shirt, try to communicate this truth to you, that God's spirit has got to be bringing some level of conviction to us as we recognize that there are things that are not worthy of living for and giving ourselves to that are far too important to us. And maybe the spirit of God is working in your heart right now, whispering to you and saying to you, you know what, this is exactly for you. And you're wondering, well, what should I do with it? I can't wait to get out of here because I don't feel, I feel guilty right now and maybe I'll forget about it. No, flee from idols. Get radical with it. Maybe many of you have been to this place many times where you've thought about it, contemplated, sense that God wanted you to do something different in your life and you've not done it. Why not do it now? And to realize maybe the truth will set you free and empower you and give you courage against whatever idol, whatever thing, whatever relationship, whatever substance, whatever accomplishment, whatever appearance that you are living for and looking to for meaning in life. And this is very serious because the Bible makes it clear that God will not allow idolaters into heaven. Revelation 22 verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You know what that's saying there? Outside means outside heaven. Outside of salvation is where people who do not repent and consistently live a lifestyle committed to these things. Run. Paul ends his letter to 1 John, we call 1 John, keep yourselves from idols. So do you get what he's saying here? Do you get it? Why not to party with Aphrodite? Because to take the bread and to take the cup is such a sweet communion with the risen Christ, a true fellowship. And when we partake in in these kinds of idolatrous things, we are also implicitly affirming and bringing into that fellowship what those things represent. And we are to be a people that, that are called by his name and his name alone. To walk worthy of the calling that we have in Christ Jesus. These two things do not go together. So my dear friends, run from idols. Flee. And not just run away, but run towards our Savior. Who alone is beautiful, glorious, giving, perfect love, all that our hearts and souls long for. He is the beautiful Savior. So run from what is ugly, run to beauty, and find him in the person of Christ.